0: Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session we are focusing on skills, in particular what are the new skills that are required for the digital age. This is an age with an increasing focus on innovation and enterprise. It is also an age when there may be a major disruption on how work is organised. And it also may be an age where many jobs are lost. A recent study by Oxford Economics has forecast that robots will replace up to 20 million factory workers by 2030. Will these jobs be replaced by other jobs? And if so, what will the new jobs and employment patterns of the future look like? To explore these and related topics, let me introduce my three guests. Bruno Cotta is Executive Director of the Entrepreneurship Centre here at Cambridge Judge Business School. Professor Jaydeep Prabhu is Professor of Marketing and Fellow of Clare College here in Cambridge. And Mark Andrews is the Digital Learning Programme Manager at the Cambridge Judge Business School. So welcome to my three guests today. Perhaps we can kick off with perhaps the, the big issue here is Why is so many governments around the world so keen on focusing on entrepreneurship and innovation? Jaydeep,
1: Great question, Michael. So let's think about how the world operated in the 20th century. You know? So you had these typically large corporations in the West that drove the world's sort of economic and innovation engine. They would spend large amounts of money on R&D, come up with the next best thing, which then they would market to people around the world. Um, And they generated large amounts of money. They employed a lot of people. They spent a lot of money on innovation and entrepreneurship. And that's changed in the 21st century. Uh, Increasingly, they're challenged by startups, you have small teams of people, sometimes in places like Cambridge, sometimes our students, who can now do things that only large companies or the government could do 10 or 20 years ago. They have access to all kinds of tools, not only in software, but also hardware. They have access to spaces like make spaces and communities of people who help them tinker with cheap computers like the Raspberry Pi and sensors and webcams and all this stuff. They can prototype and develop products and then they can commercialize them. They can crowdfund and outsource the manufacturing and so forth, and you see this around the world. So as a result, governments are increasingly keen on entrepreneurship. Uh, They're seeing large companies hire less, fewer and fewer people. They're seeing the large companies move towards automation. So where are the new jobs going to come from? Perhaps you're going to have to get people to be job makers rather than job takers. And this is true in countries like India, which have very young populations, but it's also true in places like the UK where populations are older.
0: So you think this applies across the world in both developed and developing countries? And is and it an opportunity for everybody, or is, is entrepreneurship an only opportunity for a small number of people?
1: Well, potentially, you know, nowadays, small teams can get into the entrepreneurship game wherever they are. You know, to some extent, the world is flat. Uh, it was certainly the case with software, uh, it's increasingly the case with hardware. But there are still barriers, you know, there are barriers to scaling and so forth. And often there are really opportunities for entrepreneurs to work with large companies. The entrepreneurs can do some bits uh, very well, the early stage of testing out new ideas and coming up with working prototypes or even semi viable businesses. And then the large companies can help them scale. So I think this is increasingly the case around the world. Uh, And I think many people can see entrepreneurship as a way ahead. But we also have to
0: caution that there are high failure rates. So how, how do we encourage entrepreneurship? Is, is, it, is it about skills? Is it about technology? Is it about access to finance? What are, what are the important requirements? Bruno, Yeah, this, well, is, this is your domain. It, Absolutely. It,
2: it's, a, it's an ongoing argument whether perhaps, you know what's the most important thing? Is it talent? Is it technology? Um, and and do, you, do you need lots of money to do this? Jaydee touched on this in terms of the cost of it. Cost of exploring has come down, certainly with digital tools and um, manufacturing and, and, and so on. Um, I think to encourage entrepreneurship, what you've got to do is focus on mindset first. So what's your motivation? What do you want to try and achieve? And and we do often see that entrepreneurs are you know, achievement oriented. They want to get things done, but they also need to um, have a broader set of skills that isn't just about producing something. that has to be something that somebody needs. It solves a problem uh, or it tackles a challenge and it makes some difference in the world. So I think we have to start, for me at least, thinking about their mission. What's their personal mission? What do they want to change in the world? And then how do they go about doing that?
0: Should we also, in some, some circumstances, encourage people not to be entrepreneurs? I mean, it's, it's, it's taking risks, it's very uncertain.
2: I think it's taking risks in a managed or a calculated way so that you are think thoughtfully taking that risk and it doesn't become recklessness. Uh, so, so I think the key is to, to shape their way of looking at the uncertainty and then dealing with that in a stepwise fashion so that you know, they can um, survive if, if things go wrong and try again. You don't want failure to be the end of it. In fact, fa- several failures might actually help you learn where you really need to go. So, we just clarify. I mean, we, we tend to we put these both together at the beginning: entrepreneurship
0: and innovation. I mean, they are two separate, although related, factors. Is that correct? I mean, are, are you are you thinking about high technology entrepreneurship when you're not talking
2: necessarily about high, high, high tech, or not necessarily um, innovation in the way that we often describe innovation? I think if you, if you're solving a problem that's there, so there's a need for you to do something to make the world a better place then whether you use technology or not to do that doesn't really matter. Um, what, what is increasingly the case is that we can see that technology can help you do that a lot more easily or more efficiently, um, and therefore you probably need to understand a level of, um, have a level of understanding in, in the technology itself or the tools that you're using in order to, to take that forward. But many entrepreneurs um, we see, certainly in, in, in our experience, are actually best able at surrounding themselves with people with those types of skills. So they don't necessarily have to have all the skills necessary. In fact, building a team with people who are probably better than you at doing certain things is the way that many entrepreneurs seem to be very successful. That's an
0: important point, isn't it really, that entrepreneurship's a team sport, it's not an individual sport. We often have this notion of the, the single great entrepreneur or the single great innovator. It's actually really about creating very
2: good teams. It is and I, and I think what, what I've seen certainly in recent years is that it's not even about necessarily somebody with a great idea trying to find a team. A team could form in, in, in any context uh, and so if you, if you are able to create a team um, from uh, you know, an informal setting where they are capable enough to deal with problem solving then they could go out and find a problem to solve. It doesn't have to be the case that somebody has a big invention or discovery to start the process of entrepreneurship.
0: So, so what, what are the skills of these next generation of entrepreneurs, what, what sort of skills will they require to, to succeed in this sort of volatile world?
2: I mean, that's a good way to describe it because I think probably the, the most fundamental skill that I, at least I, you see in entrepreneurs at that early stage is the ability to deal with the uncertainty of the whole situation. So they are prepared to take a risk, or at least explore, not really knowing where they're going to end up. Um, so there's a sense of resilience that they require in order to succeed. And often those people who have actually not succeeded at something and had, had to change, so as we say, you know, pivot either their, their idea, the business, or, or change the, the, their entire direction, those people that are more adaptable to that seem to do better. But isn't, that's a mindset, isn't it, rather than sort of a skill
0: that you can acquire either through, in an education establishment? It is a mindset,
2: but I think you can probably Im- improve your mindset, if you like, by, by practice uh, and by doing it. I'm, I'm not sure you can stand up and teach somebody how, how to do that. Um, you've got to put them in the setting in which they learn how best to do that for, for themselves. Well, so I, did- mean,
1: I think, you know, going back to your question about the distinction between innovation and entrepreneurship and then thinking about the question of what kinds of skills do different types of people need, I think innovation is more general in that it's about bringing some new idea to the world in a way that uh, has some commercial value that people want and need. Or social value. Or social value, indeed. Um, and so that can be done by a large company or an, a, a startup uh, by entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs can be innovative, they can do something new, or they could be you know, creating a new restaurant, you know, the, uh, the hundredth of its kind. Um, so the skills question and the education question is bigger than merely what's needed for entrepreneurs because you know i earlier characterized the world as being one where large companies are no longer hiring but they do hire and people do work for large companies but what's happening there is they have to reskill Uh, and retrain much more often than they did before. So even one of our MBA students might graduate and go to work in a bank, and in two to three years they've suddenly realized that there's this whole new area of FinTech and blockchain. They can't go back to do another MBA to pick that up. They would have to find a way to upgrade while at at the job, on the job. So there are uh, substantive things people need to learn, and yes, there are these intangible skills. Uh, And here perhaps Mark has some thoughts on, you know, where uh, business schools and education and online in particular come in. Mark?
3: Yeah, so I mean, so there's some work done by the OECD in 2012 that said that 70% of learning happens on the job and 10% happens within universities. And I kind of think that balance is is kind of quite a good metric to use because to to Bruno's point, you know, if people are going to have really impacting change, they need to be within the environment where that change needs to happen. There's only so much we can do in a kind of a simulated environment um, within business schools and within universities. Um, But I think what the digital technologies allow us to do is for us to reach into the organisations and to work with them on actually helping these things like these mindset changes, things like coaching.
0: We live in this volatile world where we're arguing we need skills and we need perhaps training and education. And of course there's a distinction between training and education and maybe we need to explore that. Uh, who's who's responsible for this? I mean, am I responsible as a worker to try and keep upgrading my skills? Is it the organisation responsible to try and make, be more flexible? Is it the universities? Is it the educational system? Is it the government? Who's responsible for improving skills in a, in a sort of volatile world?
3: It's everybody, isn't it? I mean, I think from a from an individual's level, you've got to have the intrinsic motivation to actually want to learn that skill, to want to make that change, for it to be an effective change. From a business perspective. They'll have goals and agendas of where they want to be in five, ten years' time. And there's a big challenge at the moment. Is How do you upskill a workforce, particularly for, I think, for corporations, um, at scale that mean that as a workforce, we're ready for the new challenges usually presented by um, startups and, and entrepreneurs?
0: So it's the responsibility of everybody to, to invest in education? Yeah, I yeah. think
1: socially, because, I mean, uh, the changing nature of work means, requires a changing nature uh, an approach to education. So what's the changing nature of work? Well, you know, you generally speaking, do not work for one company for all your life. That's changed. You may work for several companies, uh, either sequentially, sometimes in parallel now. Uh, You may cross sectors. Uh, The sector you're working in may change very dramatically. I was speaking to someone at Barclays recently, and she was saying how, What it means to be a banker today is very different from what it meant to be a banker five years ago even. Her role, she started in market research and customer insight and then became very quickly responsible for cybersecurity. And one of the biggest issues for banks now is cybersecurity. So they're hiring people with degrees in computer science. Um, So the the changing nature of work means we cannot take for granted that if we did one degree in one subject, that's going to hold us in good stead for the rest of our working lives. We're going to be constantly having to upgrade our skills as individuals. But then companies equally need to ensure that their workforce is trained and motivated and and ready to handle these challenges, so there's some pressure on them. But since we're in a business school and in a university, I think there's a lot of uh, pressure now on us to think about how we're going to meet this challenge. So you know, obviously having degrees is wonderful, but we've got to rethink degrees. So the Master of Studies that we've introduced is a very interesting one for people who would like to get a Cambridge degree but cannot come here for a year, take time off from work and so on, even if they could afford the fees. And so the Master of Studies allows us to do this. So how uh, does that work, the Master of Studies? So currently we have, for instance, a Master of Studies in Social Innovation, one in entrepreneurship as well. People will apply from around the world. We apply the same standards of, you know, high standards of admission. But then instead of coming and living here for a year while they study, they come for one or two weeks at a time every six months. And then between visits, a lot of their learning happens online, individually, but also in groups where they can network uh, using Skype and things like that. And they have mentoring by their tutors uh, over Skype and email and so forth. So you're just essentially using digital technology to do blended learning face-to-face in the classroom for some of the time, but a lot of the time is remotely online.
3: And I think the richness of some of those programs are is one is the global footprint and the, the multiple perspectives that you get from a particular situation. And it's also the immediacy of that learning being put into practice. If I think of one example of one of the students who is on a social innovation course who works for an NGO in a war zone, and the idea that some of the theory and some of the teaching that's coming directly from Cambridge, either digital means or through the residentials, is having an immediate impact on the way that they operate in those situations. And I think similarly to the entrepreneurs as well as they're looking at as they're starting their businesses, I think is, is, is really impactful. It's an interesting point you
2: make about the, the workplace itself. So in the workplace, people are much more likely to be exposed to these kind of digital platforms and tools. So they are more comfortable with the idea of not necessarily being in the same room as the person they're doing business with. Um, I, I am a believer that to, to to negotiate and strike deals and form relationships, it's a very human thing. To be in the same room as someone, to, to eat around a table, to shake hands, those things are important. And I think we've spent many years thinking that lots of those types of arrangements can be done purely remotely. It's very hard to do that, to to build trust and confidence without having that personal connection. But it is the case, I think, uh, as we've just discussed, in the workplace and in the classroom, as it were, in schools or or, or universities, um, the tools that everyone is becoming more familiar, in in fact, not just familiar with, but but expects to have, You know, we we recently were talking to someone who's talking about school entry, you know, young children coming in with the expectation that they will have an iPad, a tablet, a device of some kind in, in that learning journey from a very young age. So just imagine in 10-15 Ten, fifteen years time, when they come to the university level, what their expectation is in terms of digital tools that they would use to learn, and then the workplace beyond that—it's it's changing very
3: quickly. And I think also the the, the the I think what's happened digital means is this boundary between what's the education space, the kind of the formal learning environment, and the informal learning environment has just totally blurred. And I think it doesn't help us to kind of have this, this is kind of an education institution. It's, it's, it's just the notion that actually the whole environment that people operate in is, edu- is the educational institution for them. Um, there's a really nice concept of practice intelligence that Steinberg and, um, came up with in the early 90s, where there's the notion that work is learning and learning is work. So the idea that applying uh, applied learning requires students to have access to multiple environments and multiple stimuli to actually make it effective. So that could be getting input from academic institutions and it could be applying that to the practice of their work.
1: Actually, just to pick up on what Bruno and Mark were saying, I think these blended programs, you know, these like the Master of Studies, where people are here some of the time, face to face, bonding in that very human way, meeting each other and getting to know and trust each other and their uh, instructors, their tutors, their teachers, That's very important, but you can do that with these blended programs. But equally, you can have people then go back to work in their parts of the world, and while they're in work, apply what they're learning with others in a network, digital network fashion, learn while doing. And uh, I think then you also have that diversity of experience in the classroom, in the digital classroom, because you have people from different parts of the world. Let's say they were applying a particular concept of marketing around segmentation. They can actually discuss how that works differently in their particular sectors, which may be different, and in their particular geographies,
0: which may be different. So it's a very rich learning environment. This assumes that everybody's got access to resources in terms of digital networks and so on. I mean, is is there a bit pro of a digital divide here that you can you can get education if you've got the iPad the internet connection and so on and got the resources if you haven't got those resources then you're 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 this you're, is, this, you're is this is a
1: fair point and absolutely the case in fact the people who are benefiting from this are people who are ben- who benefit from education anyway these are already very talented and and you know generally res- well resourced people. But that said, you know, I think the digital divide is narrowing in many places. The question is, though, if people have the resources to actually access this kind of uh, education, even if they have the digital uh, tools. So I think it is, a, it's, it is a big question, but it may be deeper than just access to the digital. It may be cultural. It may be what people think they can achieve as opposed to what they can achieve and so forth.
3: Yeah, I th- I th- and I think with that, I think there's, there's something that we've... We found with the work we've done done in Cambridge on our blended programmes is that whilst I think there's a, an appetite for innovation and for teaching and learning in new ways, actually there's the, the human change of actually what people consider a good learning experience or a change in learning experience. And often that goes back to a more didactic approach. People, the expectation coming into a lot of programmes is that you as a professor are going to tell me the answers. Whereas I think we're moving more towards a kind of a facilitated kind of master of ceremonies, giving you, directing you, and you doing more practice-based work. But that varies
0: a lot across countries, doesn't it? It does, The way way people approach education, the way people approach universities. And so there is a lot of cultural variety here that we need to to deal with.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and if you're talking about entrepreneurs, particularly, um, the way that we try to engage, or the way that we need to engage with them is through a process of consultation, coaching, mentoring. It's being a sounding board, providing a steer, but not making decisions for them or or directing them. They are the ones who want to direct their own direction. Um, So so it's a very different way of um, sharing knowledge with them or developing skills with them, uh, and and they have to experience what you're discussing and then come back to you. And so there's there's a feedback loop that's required. That's that's not the classic classroom learning experience in in any sense. Um, And entrepreneurs, of course, are going back to the workplace, but often that's an equally uncertain environment for them. So we have to deal with that uncertainty where they might come back and completely change direction. How do you help somebody change direction? Um, and that's why I think very often for us, having experienced practitioners, so those people who have been there and done that before, are actually better at passing on that kind of guidance than necessarily an academic view. Of course, academics um, give their, their, their theories and practices, uh, and, and it's very helpful. But you need the, the theory, but you also need people who have... Who have practiced, Um, and
3: and I think that's where the the notion when you kind of think about the the classical kind of lecture theatre where everyone's looking forward at the fountain of knowledge of the professor who's giving giving a lot of theory. Actually, increasingly, we want places where actually everyone's chatting across to each other and sharing those experiences because they're living those experiences in their different jobs now and, and having those challenges now.
1: And in, in fact, you see that all the way from primary school upwards. So when I was in school growing up in India, we would sit in, in you know, benches in rows facing the teacher in the front. But my kids now here in the state school in Cambridge sit in tables, uh, you know, five, uh, distributed throughout the room, and the teacher moves around and they work with each other. So this peer-to-peer learning, I think, is is a very powerful aspect of what we do. And actually that leads me on to an- another thing I want to talk about. We've talked about these degree programs, like the Master of Studies, these blended degree programs. But I think a very interesting development, uh, and in fact a very big market already, is for non-degree programs. You know, So we already do executive training, uh, face-to-face where people come in for two days to do an open program on a specific subject like leadership or they have a custom program which we design specifically for their companies. But a lot of this is now happening online where people are in work, they may have done an MBA, they want to learn about blockchain, they'll just sign up for uh, an online course which may be anything between two months or, or, or longer Uh, offered sometimes by a non-university, by a private player, uh, startup sometimes, could be from South Africa, like Get Smarter, or India, like Upgrad. And they may take several of these, uh, not for a degree, but for a certificate or a badge, which then goes on their CV, and they prove to their employer, their current employer, their prospective employer, that they have those skills. And there's a lot of these courses now happening, which people can take at any point in their careers.
0: Could i going to just ask, particularly, obviously, we're, we're in the UK, are, are universities doing enough to embrace these sorts of challenges? Because we've talked a lot here about, you talked about the, the new degree programs, executive education, blended learning, online learning, and that's great. And I, we see lots of that here in the business school. I suggest perhaps we're not seeing so much of it in other departments or faculties of this university. So, I mean, are universities in general doing enough to, to do these sort of, these, these lifelong challenges of reskilling, training, education throughout somebody's lifetime.
2: Mark? So this,
3: this has been a huge sector challenge, I think, because universities are large, incumbent institutions that are used to working in a particular way. And I think what's changing now, particularly things with apprenticeships in the UK, where essentially the role of the university is it's no longer you come and we'll tell you what you need to learn. It's now the university being a supplier of training to whatever the requirements of the organisation are, uh, but we're, we're, we're not trainers,
0: though, are we? We're educators. Exact,
3: okay, educating, but that's a, but it's a change. It's a change in mindset, I think, and it's more that it has to be more tailored to what the company who's sending the, the um, who's sending the apprentice onto the training will will kind of set to a certain degree what they what that student needs to learn, what that apprentice needs to learn, and I think that's 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 a shift um, for, for universities to, to take on.
0: Is there also a, a challenge here that perhaps we, we don't put enough both resources and priority into education because often the focus is on research. It's on research and publications and perhaps that's at the, the, the top of the tree in terms of status and rankings and perhaps education and teaching has been put it's been put down 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 the rankings. In yeah, this
1: there, there are so many reasons why universities are not doing enough in this space. I think you pointed out one, you know, the priorities, their focus is very much, at least the prestigious universities, there's a prestige around research and then people often, as a result, often dismiss teaching, you know. Yes. And so there's this corrosive culture, I think, of seeing them, them as two mutually competitive and exclusive things, whereas they can feed into each other. But even, you know, for people who do care about teaching, I think there is a challenge for people in universities because as Mark was saying, the traditional approach is you know has been around for several decades, maybe several centuries in fact. 800 years, here, 800 years we? in a place like Cambridge. So why change something that's yeah. worked so well for 800 years? You know uh, the collegiate system requires in, indeed requires people to be resident in Cambridge. How do you rethink that in the context of uh, a master' studies program you know? Um, so there are those kind, that kind of inertia, that that kind of inertia in the system which makes change difficult, and then there's just this fear of the unknown. You know, what is this new thing? Will it destroy the one thing we value most, which is our reputation as a university, Cambridge University, where we know what we're teaching people, we know how we're assessing them, and we know that they take this exam in this room, and then we grade them, and we know what that means. So really trying to understand this brave new world is a, is a bit challenging. We have to be entrepreneurs and take a risk, uh, uh, go into the unknown in a way. I think you know academics are quite conservative as it is. So that's a big challenge for universities.
3: So, so some research I did looking into these kind of changes was some of the issues I found with universities is one is the governance and administrations of universities to catch up with this. So Jailice mentioned about accreditation. We need to look at alternative ways of accrediting students, particularly if we're doing it at distance or at scale, the three-hour exam is obviously a challenge for that. There's the efficacy of these new methods. You know, we know quite rightly uh, universities such as Cambridge, you know, we want to make sure we're doing quality learning and quality assessments. And actually, I think the research base behind a lot of the new delivery methods just isn't there at the moment. It's innovating quicker than we know that actually these are effective um, metrics and effective tools. There's also the organisation and also the individual culture change. So what does it mean to be a, a member of faculty delivering in this mode now? It's, it's a different world to what it was you know, um, 10, 15 years ago. And then I think there's also, as we look to broaden to new learner audiences, there's also the tone from being kind of academic and abstract to being more applied and practical. Well,
2: I, I, I have a view at least in yeah. terms of entrepreneurship, because if you're trying to teach or, or encourage rather entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs, then there are three pillars that you need to bring together. One is research, because we need to understand how things are done and why, why things happen. Um, so that gives you the sense of knowledge. In terms of skills, it's education and you know creating, uh, imparting skills that, that are useful. But then it's practice, because entrepreneurship is about creating things. It's about getting things done. Um, so it's not a theoretical sport. It's very practical. Um, and it's very real when it doesn't work. So I think you, we need to bring together... How do, you do that? How do you bring those three together in, in Cambridge, Bruno? Well, um, at least for the centre uh, where I am, um, we, al- we allow ourselves, if you like, the freedom to explore avenues of research and entrepreneurship, whether that's organisational behaviour, process and venture creation and so on. We, we then try our best to take elements of that learning and bring that into a classroom setting where we're educating others based on that understanding. But what are we looking at in terms of data? We're looking at real practitioners. We're looking at entrepreneurs and what they actually do. So that's the third aspect, where as we're teaching you as an entrepreneur or we're guiding you and coaching you, perhaps, we're also watching you and learning from you. So we maintain that loop where, we're, um, where, where the, the way that entrepreneurship is done is, is changing, as we've already discussed. Um, we, we can't... Be too complacent to say, well, the way that we're teaching it today is going to be the same in six months, a year's time, or even 10 years' time. Um, and so we actually learn from the people that we're teaching in, in that process.
1: I think that's a very important aspect of these more blended learning forms of education, whether they're for degrees or non-degrees, because you're often then teaching, pe- teaching people or in work and they're able to apply things almost immediately that they hear from you as the instructor. But equally, you're able to draw on their live challenges and bring those back into the classroom. I think that feedback is a very important part of the process. And so I would say that you know, what you're doing in entrepreneurship is also now happening in other parts of business that we teach in these blended programs because that feedback loop comes through the fact that they are in work while we're teaching them. Yeah. Both in the degree programs, but also particularly in these non-degree programs, because this is specific, these are specifically designed for people in work. Sometimes specifically this a custom program is customized to the company around the company's current problems. So I think that two-way feed that feedback is very important for us in academia to learn with people who we are teaching.
0: We've talked about the the need for individuals to embrace sort of the changing working environment. We've talked about organizations and companies need to do that, to be learning companies and to embrace change. We've talked about universities having to embrace these sorts of change. One final area to to think if you've got any any views on is, is what's the role of public policy in all of this because education or training or acquiring skills can often be very expensive and very uncertain and often it's provided through the state but actually we're seeing increasing pressures on many governments around the world to cut back and putting the pre- putting at the cost of education, the cost of acquiring new skills on the individual or on the company. I mean, what's the role of public policy to sort of embrace these challenges of the changing, stru- changing nature of work and the, ch- the importance of acquiring skills and education throughout your lifetime?
1: So uh, there's a very important role for the state in this whole space. Um, first, a recognition that the landscape has changed. The nature of work has changed and therefore the nature of uh, education, skills, training must change therefore the role of schools and universities needs to change and so there needs to be that recognition and it has to be funded so somebody has to pay now yes and it, somebody has to pay yes the question is who pays and how much and currently i mean we know this uh, uh, students and their parents are paying a lot and the cost of education has been going up education and health appear to have cost disease and that needs to be solved in some way. So how do we solve that? I think, personally, I feel that digital learning offers a way to reduce costs, the cost of education, increase the reach of education. Uh, there may be uh, high setup costs because you know you what you would teach in a classroom over over a course of a semester. You know you could then you would then repeat the next semester. You could make that into an online course, and once you've made that into an online course, you don't have to necessarily physically deliver that. I mean, so there are potentially uh, significant cost savings, and digital, as we've, as we've seen, can extend your reach, uh, provided that those tools are available to people. So I think digital and blended learning uh, offers a way around this cost disease that we see uh, afflicting education, and the state perhaps can encourage that and find ways to reduce that cost.
3: I, th- I think I think there's another area as well is public policy could be used to to help fund to turn really good research. So I think about in Cambridge the Centre for Existential Risk doing great research um, in the in the area of you know future risks, um, maybe funding around those areas that allows that. That research to be to, uh, to be turned into really good education that then can be distributed to organisations and to uh, as, as, as courses and Th- through digital learning through digital learning through you know through various means that I think it has to be digital but um, just a, a, a way that that means we can take more high class research and turn it into manageable educational chunks that then move and forward. Are, to are, the are the you sectors. optimistic
0: that we're going in the right direction? Here. Yeah.
3: So I was just going
1: to say that's already started. So I'm already part of a few grant applications and so on, where the bid, uh, the the brief from the funding body, whether it's the ESRC or EPSRC or one of these big grant challenges or foundation, the bid very explicitly requires the academic team not only to think about the academic research they're going to do, but also think about how they're going to disseminate that, including turning the output of that research into some kind of teaching or training resource or material, which is typically digital and will be delivered online. So this is already happening.
3: And we see this with people like the Circular Economy Centre, you know, looking at how you can reduce waste through various projects and then um...
0: disseminate that. That's an important area, an important area about knowledge exchange and how universities have impact on private, public and third sectors. But that's probably a topic for a future podcast because I noticed we're running out of time. So I'd like to thank uh, my guests today, Bruno Cotter, Professor Jaidi Prabhu and Mark Andrews. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you for joining us and I hope that you can join us next time.